You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. My mind raced ahead of the Rolodex as I frantically searched the dog-eared cards for Ringo's number. Did I have it under Tom? Did I have it crammed in the seas for crew? I couldn't imagine going offshore without Tom Ring. I had had the good fortune of great crew members while captaining the Hannah Bowden and knew that Ringo would be my first-round draft pick for the upcoming trip. Like me, he hadn't been swordfishing in the last decade. But also like me, he'd been working on the water and dreaming about a comeback and waiting for the right opportunity. And now, opportunity was knocking. Ringo answered the phone, but he wasn't about to answer the knock. He'd been gillnetting with the same captain for some years now and wouldn't feel right about leaving him in the lurch, he said. I wondered when Ringo had become scrupulous. Besides, he explained, my life has changed. I'm a grandfather. That was a tough one to argue with. Ringo had played the grandfather card. There was no sense trying to sway him. Ringo was out. So Ringo's life had changed? No shit. Whose hadn't? If your life doesn't change in the course of a decade, there must surely be some moss growing. I had settled down significantly in the last ten years, and the changes had been good. Although I'd never married, I did have the best guy friend, Simon. Sure, I'd push for a permanent relationship, including a ring, but Simon just couldn't get there. We did, however, go Dutch treat on a cement mixer, and that's about as committed as I'd ever been. I had long given up on the wedding bells. And furthermore, Ringo's grandchild, just for the record, is his wife's daughter's baby, not even blood-related. His life had changed. What about mine? If Ringo could claim he was a grandfather, I could say I was a mother. In fact, talk about change in responsibility. I had become the legal guardian of a teenage girl just one year before. I'd gone from zero to 15 with a stroke of a pen. Granted, I was still in the process of getting to know Soraya and hoping I would do a better job than her former guardian. Soraya would be well cared for in my absence, I justified. In fact, the more I thought about it, the more comfortable I was about shirking this particular responsibility. My second choice after Ringo would be Kenny Puttister, the red-headed Newfie I'd worked with for years. Kenny would probably be fishing with Scotty aboard the Eagle Eye, too. It wouldn't be very ethical of me to try to steal him. Besides, if I were Kenny and had to choose between the two captains, me or Scotty, I'd go with Scotty, too. There was no point in putting myself through that humiliation. I had absolutely no way of getting in touch with choice number three, Carl. He owed me some money, so there was little chance he'd surface if I put feelers out. James was in Ireland. I hadn't heard from Ivan in years. I hesitated on a card on which I'd written Moron. The Moron would be available. I just couldn't do it. I had signed on to spend 60 days, a minimum of 1,000 miles from home, bobbing around the North Atlantic Ocean during the height of hurricane season in pursuit of swordfish. I would be living and working in less than optimum conditions, very closely with four men. In the past, I had not minded working with men who behaved like animals, or morons for that matter. They got the job done. I had always hired from the neck down. But at the age of 47, I realized that I had changed and perhaps my criteria for crew needed to change. Linda Greenlaw has been described as one of the best captains, period, on the East Coast. 
As captain of the Hannah Bowden, she was the last person in contact with the crew of the Andrea Gale, whose disappearance in a hurricane in October of 1991 was chronicled in both the book and movie titled The Perfect Storm. She's the author of The Hungry Ocean, The Lobster Chronicles, Recipes from a Very Small Island, and All Fishermen Are Liars. She's written two mystery novels featuring marine investigator Jane Bunker, Slipknot, and Fisherman's Ben. Her new book is Seaworthy, A Soreboat Captain Returns to the Sea. Thank you for speaking with me, Linda. Thanks so much for having me. Linda, you know, here I'm sitting in this office with you, and I have to say that you don't look like a sailboat <laughs> captain, a swordboat captain. How did you get into this business? Well, my first thing, the reaction to that is, um, I wonder how many swordboat captains you know. And I guess my second Zero. reaction is, um, I know a lot of them, so I'm going to take that as a compliment and say thank you. <laughs> I, I got into fishing at the age of 19. You know, I um, needed uh, a good job to help pay my way through college. And back in 1979, there was a lot of money in commercial fishing. I had been raised on a small island off the coast of Maine, and boats and fishing were a way of life. I spent my early childhood trying to catch anything that swam or crawled around the shores surrounding my home. So at the age of 19, it seemed like a pretty natural step, you know, jump aboard a boat and make some money. I want to talk a little bit about your time in the Hannah boat and through all this time of, of the perfect storm. You spent out quite a while in sword fishing, didn't you? I did, yes. Um, 20 years, a big 20-year block. I was engaged, you know, sort of sporadically in some different fisheries, but I always went back to sword fishing. Most of my experience during that 20 years was, was catching swordfish. As a, as a sword fisherman, um, this must be, you know, this is not a, a part-time occupation when you're doing it. You're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a life. You, you stepped away from that life and became a, a lobsterman, and, and that's a, a very, very different style. What, what led you to do that? Well, uh, I had been sword fishing for 20 years. I was in my late 30s, and I really had reached the top of my game. I was running the Hannah Bowden, most coveted boat in the fleet. I'd had that boat for six years, doing very well. And I thought, geez, maybe I am missing something. Maybe I should go home. I need to settle down, get married, have kids, do what my girlfriends had been doing while I'd been offshore for 20 years. And I thought it was going to work out perfectly because I could still, you know, I could still fish for a living. I could fish for lobsters, be home every night, mm -hmm. and, you know, just have like sort of more of a normal or what most people would think of as a normal routine and normal life. Did you have a normal life? Did that work out for you? No, you know, I, I have come, no, okay, not married, no kids. Um, I am not flawed. I, I realize now that my plan was flawed. I mean, I moved to a little island where there are three single men. Two of them are gay. The third one's my cousin. You know, <laughs> not a lot of, uh, you know, marriage proposals coming along that way. So, um, you know, I basically was uh, sort of out of, out, of the, out of the circulation of, um, you know, I guess getting married during the years when most people, you know, hook up with someone and decide they're going to spend the rest of their lives with them. I haven't given up on it altogether, though. I'm still, I'm still very interested. Now, uh, it interests me that here you are, you're, you know, you're a well-known top-of-your-game captain, left at the top of your game. You've written a lot of books. Um, you've got a fairly good, you know, setup here on the Lobster Island. Yet, uh, fishing is 
seems to be no matter how you run it, no matter how much money you can make when you're fishing, it always ends up seems to end up to be like a, a paycheck to paycheck kind of job. I'll tell you what, you're lucky if it's paycheck to paycheck. I've been doing it for 30 years now, one capacity or another. And um, fishermen who fish primarily for the money are really disappointed most of the time. Uh, there's a lot more to it than that. And, you know, in my case, I love what I do. I like the way I feel when I'm at sea. I am passionate about catching fish. You know, if I make some money, that's great. If I don't, well, you know, back when I was younger, it didn't really matter. I mean, I'd had, I had everything I owned in a green garbage bag. You know, I could easily throw it from the back of the truck to the deck of a boat and go fishing. Um, you know, years go by, you know, I've become a lot more, what most people, I think, would consider more responsible because I'd certainly been accused of being very irresponsible in the 20 years that I was sword fishing. Mm -hmm. um, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have a house. I didn't really have anything except for this life that I really loved. Um, you know, and now in hindsight, I am fully vested in responsibility. I have a house, I have a mortgage, I, I own my own boat, I own lobster traps, I have this, you know, uh, seining business, you know, fishing for bait. I have all these things, and I have to tell you, responsibility doesn't hold a candle to what I used to have. <laughs> and, and I guess that explains your newest book. Um, here you are, you're, you're engaged in lobster fishing at the beginning of the book, after a prologue we'll come to later. Um, and you, you've got a you know a pretty good life, but you decide to to step back into the boat again. Tell us how that happened and how it made you feel. Okay, well, um, in the ten years that I was lobster fishing and writing, I always wanted to go back to sword fishing, and mm -hmm. I, I never, for a minute, believed that I wouldn't go back to it because I. I just thought about it all the time, and I, I kept, you know, even like eight, nine, ten years into this absence, I kept introducing myself as a commercial fisherman to the point of I was actually embarrassed <laughs> to be introduced as a best-selling author. It just didn't cut it for me. Thus, you know, the title of my book, Seaworthy, Seaworthy has always been, in my mind, the most complimentary adjective that I could attribute to someone or, or to, you know, aspire to myself. So here I am in these 10 years off the ocean, basically. I Me, mean, I was lobstering, but that's, you know, we call that puddle fishing. It's not <laughs> exactly the same as real hardy blue water offshore adventure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 10 years, and I always want to go back to it. And it seemed the more time went by that I didn't get back to it, the more unlikely it was I would ever return to my first love. Uh, I had some calls during the course of that 10 years, people saying, hey, you know, there's a boat, it's in, you know, Puerto Rico, we need a captain, just go, or it's in Newfoundland, we need a captain, just go, it's all ready. But the opportunity was never right, or the timing was never right. Oh, I couldn't, you know, just leave 800 lobster traps in the water and mm -hmm. go sword fishing, or I couldn't leave in the middle of a 60-city book tour. Yeah, call the publicist. Sorry, going fishing. <laughs> Bye. You gotta go. <laughs> you know, it probably wouldn't work. So... You know, this, you know, two years ago, the phone rings, and I know if I don't say yes this time, I mean, how many more times is this phone going to ring, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I pretty much dropped everything, and you just made the decision that I'm going, period. And I did. 
Now, you got a call from Jim Booty. He offered you the captaincy of the Seahawk. The first thing you had to do, and you, uh, we hear a bit about this in your reading, is to uh, select your crew. Um, talk about selecting a crew because these are people, as you mentioned, this is four men that you, a single woman, are going to be spending 60 days with in, in the ocean in quarters that would make a college dorm room look positively luxurious. <laughs> You're right about that. And, you know, my dream was to get my old crew back, right? You know, I'm hey, sure. I'm, I'm going fishing, and I'm going to get my guys that I had on the Hannah Bowden, and it's going to be, you know, old home week. And we will jump in right where we left off, right at the top of the game. Well, um, I suppose, you know, the audience may know this, they may not, but the trip that I write about in Seaworthy was also documented um, on the Discovery Channel. Mm -hmm. um, last year with the swords, life on the line. Well, I already accepted the job to take the boat, and at about the time I was trying to find crew, I learned that Discovery Channel, well, actually at the time it was NBC, but for our purposes, Discovery Channel was going to have crew, you know, film people aboard and document it. So I sent a list of names with Social Security numbers um, to the powers that be in the production world, and they said, these guys don't pass the background check. They're not going. <laughs> so I scraped around and got the B list together. Nope. Nobody's passing the background check. So that'll give you like a little bit of an idea what kind of guys I used to take fishing. <laughs> okay. Um, so I ended up with this sort of totally made for TV crew. Um, great guys, really nice gentlemen, friends of mine, with the exception of one that I didn't know that well. The other three were longtime buddies of mine. Mm -hmm. Machado was the one you didn't know. Machado was the one, you know, I'd met him, uh, you know, 15 years before. And uh, at least he had some fishing experience. He had some, he had some, uh, you know, long lining swordfish experience. So that, that was a plus. You get these guys together. Talk about creating, you know, the, 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 I guess the feeling of, you know, the, the social structure necessary to make this thing work. Because this is kind of a cross between a business, a family, and, you know, a slave labor camp in which all of you are, to a certain extent, slaves. Yeah, to some extent that's true. Um, you know, I think the first order of business is to, you know, let everyone know that it's not a democracy. You know, there's a captain on the boat. And that's me. And, you know, the way it should work is the captain says something and it gets done. Well, these guys were all cool with that. But it was a little bit more difficult because they're friends of mine. If I was unhappy with the way something was going, I mean, in my earlier days, I mean, I thought nothing of really screaming at someone, berating them, belittling them, you know, really bad. Uh, but I'm not going to do that with my friends. And we'll see, okay, is it I'm not going to do it with my friends or is it, I'm now 10 years older. You know, you like to think that, you know. You didn't you, know which it was, did you? I, I didn't know which it was, and I'm still not sure which mm. it was. Now, um, tell us a little bit about the crew, because they're very interesting characters. And, you know, as both as a person who's on the boat and also think talk a little bit about being a writer, about how you created um, these people, you know, in print to as characters, people we can see if we didn't see the series. Well, fortunately, all four of these guys 
are great characters to write about. You know, I didn't have to exaggerate. In fact, in a couple of cases, I had to sort of leave a lot out. Um, well, what, is, so, what kind of stuff did you have to leave out? Tell well, us. no, no, no. <laughs> yes, no, that's yes. stuff that I can't say on the radio either. Oh, no, so anyway, you can say it on no. it's a podcast. We can cut it. We can work okay. on it. Anyway. Okay, on with the show. Um, my first, my first um, yes from a crew member that actually could pass muster in the background check was a very, very close friend of mine, Dave Hiltz. Now, Dave Hiltz is a fellow islander, fellow lobster fisherman, always wanted to go sword fishing. I mean, the 10 years that I was lobstering, Every time this topic of any kind of fishing came up, Dave, you know, was like, Linda, if you ever go again, I'm going with you. So he was like sort of the no-brainer and um, just a nice guy. So that, that was perfect. I, you know, picked up the phone, you know, are you in? Yes, boom, he's in. Um, I called my friend Archie, Arthur how, Yost. How old, how old is, uh, is, is uh, Dave Hiltz? Dave Hiltz is younger than me. Let's say he's 40. Okay. Okay, I think works he is for, 40, actually. Works for me. Yeah. Um, then I call my buddy Archie, whose name is Arthur Jost, and uh, he lives in Florida. He's just an old friend of mine. Um, never fished with him, although he is um, very much a recreational fisherman and had owned a commercial fishing boat many years before. Or well, Archie's like 67. I'm pretty much calling him just because I want to chat, and I'm thinking I'm going to get a you go girl from Archie. Never, never thinking that, um, that Archie's going to go fishing with me. Well, I call him up and I tell him I'm going to the Grand Banks and he pretty much signs himself right up. You know, there was, wasn't even asking if he could go. He's like, yep, I'm going with you. And I'm bringing my friend, my friend, Timmy, Tim Palmer. You're going to love him, which I did. Tim Palmer, young, strong, nice, just a peach of a guy. The kind of guy you, you want to be around for 30 days at a time working mm -hmm. in very small you know close quarters and just just a great guy and a good engineer as it turned out as it turned out was very important because you know the Seahawk had a lot of problems so um number four you know sort of rounding out the crew is Mike Machado who um was a guy that the manager of the boat Jim Buddy um suggested that I take because you know he'd been fishing on these boats before la 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 and um Machado, you know, is way, way, way overweight, way overweight, but still kind of nimble enough to, you know, get around and do the job. Um, what I liked most about Machado was definitely a sense of humor. He's probably the funniest man, not the funniest man I've ever fished with, the funniest man I've ever met, just a natural-born comedian. Now, you've got these people out here. Tell us a little bit about what these, what these boats are, are, are like and, and how, because, you know, when we see these things on TV or in the movies, we just think they come together, they're perfect. We think it's like a, I mean, in all my experience recently of boats is on a cruise ship, so I think it's all just, you know, it's seamless, it's perfect, it has all sorts of great electronic stuff, everything's in perfect shape and it works and there's just no problems. Is that the case? Well... The Seahawks certainly had a few imperfections. <laughs> oh, my God. My crew went to New Bedford, Massachusetts to work on the boat to get it ready for sea a week before I showed up. And, I mean, these guys worked, like, every daylight minute for a week. And I showed up thinking, all right, this boat's got to be in pretty good shape. And, I mean, I was sick when I looked at the boat. The most recent captain had died aboard the boat. The boat had been dry docked and put up for sale. 
it's one of four in a fleet owned by the same guy. So the other three boats are scavenging, knowing this boat's never going fishing again, taking anything worth anything off the Seahawk and putting it on their boat, you know, beeper buoys, any type of gear, electronics, kitchen utensils. I mean, there was nothing on this boat. And what was there wasn't even worth stealing, obviously, because it was still there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> once you, you get this boat, you get it all fixed up, uh, tell us about, you know, your when you finally got to, to leave, when you finally got to press the go button on your new adventure. And I want you to tell me about how you felt because you're, it's been 10 years since you've been on the ocean. And that must have been in this kind of adventure, in this kind of situation where you've got four guys who are reporting to you. Uh, how did that feel to you? Were you worried or nervous? or? Well, sure. You know what? Um, the most superficial, I, I guess, thing was was nerves. You know, yeah, I'm nervous. Mm -hmm. I've been out for 10 years, and I'm, the boat's a little shaky and questionable. But what really, um, what really, really, really was on my mind was my own seaworthiness. You know, could I still navigate the problems and difficulties inherent in going to sea for 30 days? Mm -hmm. Could I ride out a storm? Could I put blood on the deck? Could I lead a crew of four men? And most importantly, did it still matter to me? I mean, what I had at risk was my entire identity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I risked disenchantment with what I thought my life was to that point. I understand. So if this didn't work out for you, you would have to admit that you were no longer you. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, I, I could cope without, um, you know, I could cope with a bad trip. I could cope with, you know, slow fishing or bad weather. But how do you deal with, wow, so I was wrong for the first 47 years of my life. Hmm. And how do you start over? Uh, easier said than done. Yeah, we got a pretty short resume. I fish and I write about fishing. Where do you go from there? <laughs> uh, well, you wrote about... Uh this trip, and, and quite well. I, I really enjoy the prose in this book. And I have to ask, does the prose in this book give us, uh, it seems to, one of the things you do very well as a writer is your prose gives us a feel of what it's like to be out there. And, and I think so, to a certain extent of what the language is like out there, how people talk, and, and also to, of the emotional state. Because there's not, I mean, we see a lot of, again, when we look at uh, movies or TV shows about the stuff we see, all we see is all the action. You know, we, we don't see a lot of the stuff in between, but you give us a, a feel for some of that stuff in between. Yeah, you know, and thank you. And some of the nicest compliments I get um, on my books are from A, commercial fishermen who say, you got it right. And B, people who've never been fishing who say, I've always wanted to go and I wondered what it would be like, but now I don't have to go. So, I mean, that's huge. I mean, that's the goal as a writer is to bring somebody into your world. And so to think that I've been somewhat successful at that is great. And you're right. You know, you watch TV, uh, you know, The Deadliest Catch or Sword's Life on the Line or the movie The Perfect Storm, and it's all about the drama. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's all about the physical drama. 
It's, right. it's bad weather. It's big fish. It's, you know, fist fights. It's this. It's that. But you can't portray emotion or feeling or sense of place. Or being bored sitting out in the middle of the ocean right. for her. Yeah, you can't, you know, you can't portray that very well um, on film. Not like you, not like you can with words. You got out there. Uh, one of the things that I'm interested in is in the intervening ten years, while you were out, uh, technology must have changed tremendously. And I wonder how much you kept up on that technology, and or how much. You found yourself going, oh my God, what the heck is this thing, and what is it supposed to do? You know, you're you're right in um, s- saying that technology had changed a great deal in the ten years in during my absence. But the Seahawk didn't have any of that technology, so I really didn't have to bone up <laughs> like at the last minute. I have, I have better electronics on my inshore lobster boat than I had aboard the sea, you know, the Seahawk. Um, but having said that, yeah, you know what? The available technology is mind-boggling. I mean, just see satellite receivers, you know, back in the day, we used to get a fax. You know, it's a fax machine that would show the Gulf Stream. It's like black and white. You know, here's a line drawing the Gulf Stream, and here's, here's a warm eddy, here's a cold eddy. Well, now you have a satellite receiver. I mean, you get the eye in the sky. You're looking at the ocean from a satellite. It, it's incredible. You, you, can, you have programs that will show you um, salinity, plankton densities, um, water temperatures, um, upwellings of warm water, just all of these ocean features and details that are so important when you really want to, you know, zero in on some fish. I didn't have any access to that, but, you know, there's always next year. (laughs) Well, maybe. You got out there, and uh, the first thing that happened is uh, everything fell apart. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you know, we... um, we throw the lines, and, you know, that's a pretty big deal after 10 years. You throw the lines off the dock, and, um, you know, George Clooney, I know it sounds corny, George Clooney in The Perfect Storm, that little soliloquy about being a sword boat captain and how much it means, hits pretty close to home. I mean, that's very accurate mm. to me. Mm-hmm. So you throw the lines. We're gone. We're going to be gone for 30 days. We make these trips in sync with the lunar cycle for a variety of reasons. But anyway... 24 hours into our big adventure, main engine blows up. I'm drifting, <laughs> dead in the water, and I have to call someone for a tow. I've never been towed. Never, ever, ever. So here I am, my great comeback trip. Um, we're not looking too good here. And there's nothing more sort of a, a helpless feeling as a captain than being on the wrong end of the tow line. It must have been kind of humiliating for you because, I mean, uh Compared to many of your, the people who were had been out there before and were still out there now, you're kind of like a, a rock star. You're you're the Bono of the of the sword fishing set. Well, here's and the deal, you, right? You yeah, you know, Sebastian Junger says, uh, you know, the best sword fishing captain on the entire East Coast. Year after year, trip after trip, she catches more fish than anyone, makes more money. When the Hannah Bowden unloads or catching Gloucester swordfish prices plummet halfway around the world, pretty tough image to live up to, mm. right? And, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, that makes it even worse. It's like, oh, yeah, right. If I'm the best, we've got some problems in the fleet here, guys. <laughs> uh, when, you, when you got this tow, talk about um, that, you know, uh, 
that actually proved to be somewhat helpful to you because this, when you're going out there, you're not the only person out there. This is a competition, and you were not averse to making use of of the, any advantage provided for you. And talk a little bit about the competition between you and some of the other captains. There's not that many, you know. Again, I have this feeling that there's legions, like maybe hundreds of boats going out there. That's not the case, is it? No. In fact, you know, 20 years ago there were. 40 or 50 boats going from the eastern seaboard to east of the Grand Banks, which is, you know, where we fish. Last year and the year before, six. Half a dozen boats, that's it. Still a pretty healthy competition. I mean, fishermen by nature are competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody wants to catch the most, the fastest. And so here I am, you know, drifting around, but okay, we'll make the best of a bad situation. Well, we can get Scotty, the captain of the Eagle Eye 2, to tow us in. That'll delay his trip, too. <laughs> And, you know, he's one of the boats that's featured on the TV show, mm -hmm. right? So let's not let him get too much of a head start. We'll have him tow us in. And then, we're, you know, when we're in there getting the engine fixed, we actually um, we scored some really beautiful bait, which is good. I mean, you know, nice bait is one of the keys to, to successful fishing. So that was, well, you know, as long as we're here and this really nice bait is available, we'll grab a little bit of that too. I, and that proved to be at the at – the behesta of Mr. Machado, who left the boat, and you were rather suspicious as to his motives for doing so, and the certainty as to whether or not he'd return, and what state he'd return in. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been doing this a long time, and generally, when the guys get off the boat and go up the street, <laughs> if they come back, they're not, they're pretty much useless. Mm. You know what I mean? They, they go up and get into the booze, and they're pretty much all done if they come back. Well, you know, Machado surprised me. He came back when he said he was going to be back, and he'd actually been out scouting around and found some beautiful bait. That's kind of wild. Now, one of the things I think you do well in this book is pace the story. As, as a writer, you break it up into chapters, keep us reading. Um, I'm guessing that doesn't exactly reflect your experience. So talk about converting, you know, uh, some of the you know, the boredom and, you know, some of the stress into plot points. I mean, this is, in, uh, here you are as a, as a fisherman driving around, you're turning your life into, a, into, a, into plot points. And I'll tell you what, that doesn't exactly come naturally. Okay, <laughs> Seaworthy is book number seven for me. Mm. And um, I've had, you know, the very good fortune to work with some great editors. Um, I, it's my voice, I do all the writing. But um, I think I've learned in the course of the first six books what is expected as far as when I turn a chapter in, um, which I do. I mean, I finish a chapter. I send it because I don't want to get too far astray. Mm -hmm. um, and it, at this point, you know, I send a chapter in and I get a call that says, yep, keep going. Good. You know, like, okay, gee, it only took her seven books to figure this out. But, yeah, I think I nailed it this time. Were you sending in chapters from the boat as you were out there? No, I, I, it's impossible to write on the boat. I, um, in fact, when I left on this trip, I didn't know that I'd be writing about it at all. I mean, my hands are full just trying to keep the boat afloat and keep the guys together and try and put some fish on the boat. Um, never, I've never written on the boat, uh, you know, signed a contract after the trip. And then it becomes, you know, a point of, okay, let's see if I can remember kind of every funny thing or every terrible thing or and I think I have a pretty good memory. 
Yeah, a lot of terrible things to remember. Yeah, <laughs> not, the list not is the, pretty... the happiest voyage yeah, of, I've not ever the read. Is. No, in fact, you know, I, I refer, you know, to the the entire trip as a fifty six day epic disaster, and I'm the first one to say if this trip in Seaworthy had been my first trip ever, mm-hmm. I never would have made a second one. No way. And by virtue of, of your choice or by virtue of the people who hired you and said, oh, my God. Both. <laughs> You're right. If I, 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 I never would have wanted to make a second trip, but if I had, I you know, would have had to move to another country or something where they hadn't heard about this one yet. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, you know, good point. Um, but, you know, the fact that I can, I can say the next year, which was last year, I went again. Um, says something about a maturity level. And you know what? I've been fishing a long time. I know that all trips aren't a piece of cake. Mm. They aren't all as bad as this one, obviously. This one was, you know, probably the worst one I'd ever been on. Um, But, you know, everyone has to have a worse trip. Glad that's behind me. (laughs) Well, it's what's interesting, too, is how um, as you're making this trip, you you're, you find yourself reflecting a lot on who you were before and who you are when during this trip, uh, and that must have been uh, kind of interesting for you in a way. This is a would would have been a trip that would have forced you to get to know who you had been and who you'd become in the intervening time, and it, it, you'd changed, hadn't you? Sure, and I mean there were a lot of questions I wanted to answer. You know, going back to something that I love so much as a much older woman, um, you know, it was constantly taking not just like sort of physical inventory. Yeah, you know what? I don't remember my hands hurting this much before. Mm. I don't remember like the sleep deprivation bothering me as much as it. I need more caffeine than I used to need um, and things like that. But, you know, the mental state too. This place where you go, the Grand Banks, I mean, I look at the Atlantic Ocean, I think ocean. I don't think little tiny islands out there but it's not it's not just a trackless ocean is it no it's not and especially like steaming back and forth you know we're we do go by some points of land i mean you know the first point of land is nova scotia mm-hmm. pretty big piece of property oh yeah and uh, then there's these two little tiny islands between nova scotia and newfoundland mm-hmm. called saint pierre and miquelon owned by france oh, i mean really? how weird is that owned by france out they're basically out in the middle of the ocean Pretty neat. Um, And there's Sable Island, known as the Graveyard of the North Atlantic. Um, Really kind of a dangerous shoals, three sides of it. Again, you know, we're not fishing right there, but you you have to steam by it back and forth. What's the distance we're talking about here from from the very beginning to the furthest point out where you'd be fishing? The furthest point out, I would say the closest point that we'd be fishing would be about 1,000 miles. Oh, wow. And we could be, um, you know, 15 or 1,600 miles, depending on you know, where the fish and the water temperature take us. Mm-hmm. Now, um, it's, I was kind of shocked to read that you, you decided to do safety drills. I, I, again, it just seemed to me like, um, of course, they don't need to do safety drills. Of course they're safe. But Well, <laughs> um, you know, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that safety drills are required by the Coast Guard. Oh, really? And I'm re- required to do them and re- required to record them in a logbook. And if I get boarded by the Coast Guard, I mean, they want to see that you're doing this stuff. Well, then there you go. Uh, now, when you finally get to the point where you're fishing, um, first off, 
talk a little bit about the swordfish. I mean, I see these things, and I, it never occurred to me before that they're predators. Uh, tell us what you know about swordfish, how big they get, what, what they eat, and, and where, where they live and how they, when they decide to come up where you can catch them. Yeah, swordfish are pretty interesting creatures. I will say of all the different types of fishing that I do, uh, sword fishing is the most interesting because swordfish themselves are elusive. I mean, it's not an easy fish to catch. Um, having said that, interesting things about swordfish, I mean, just look at them. It, it, it's a fish with a sword. It's like a unicorn, but it's real. They're just like mythical looking. Mm -hmm. They have this thing and they, they use it as a weapon and they use it to feed themselves. Really? And they are good with it. Mm. Even like a great big three or 400 pound fish, they're so quick swinging that um, sword around. They're, they're pretty amazing. They're fast swimmers. They're very strong swimmers. They're hard fighters when they're on a hook, which is how we catch them. Uh, they're monogamous. Um, really? Yep. They migrate um, through the, you know, you can fish on them year round. I don't. I choose to fish on the Grand Banks east of Newfoundland. Um, a lot of guys chase them, you know, mm. the migration pattern. Um, yeah, I mean, they're just an interesting fish. They're a lot of fun to catch. Uh, every fish that comes aboard the boat, it gets to a point of one against one. It's one man and one fish. Because although we have hydraulics to haul this big line and all the gear aboard, when there's a fish coming close to the boat, the hydraulics stop. And it's one man, or woman in my case, hauling this line hand over hand and fighting a fish. It's very primitive. This There's is, something very exciting about it. This is a, a three or 400-pound fish that you're pulling out of the water? Or? It could be. Last, um, last season, we had the biggest average fish that I've seen in my life since the age of 19. We had a 171-pound average. So you know to have an average like that, we had a lot of fish that were enormous, mm. 400 pounders. How big is something, a 400 pound swordfish? Well, you know what? They're just like people. They're all shaped differently. Oh, really? You know what I mean? There's short Some of them fat. Are fat. Yep, there's short fat fish, and those are the ones we really like. <laughs> um, they're a long, skinny fish. We call them racers. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it kind of depends. They're, they're all different. Wow, I never even imagined that, that they would be, that they'd be like people, be different like that. Um, you know, you have this. Um, phrase in here, which I found rather mind-boggling, and I want to ask you to describe what you mean by this. A 30-mile set of 800 hooks. What the heck is that? How? What do you mean by that? Okay. Um, the method that we use to catch swordfish where I fish is called longlining, mm -hmm. and it's one single strand of 1,000-pound test monofilament line. How thick is that? It's smaller around than a pencil. Mm-hmm but not much smaller around than a pencil. Mm. Okay, onto, you know, it goes out the stern of the boat at night when, when we're setting out, and onto that 30 miles of line, we clip these things called leaders, and that's an assembly with a hook at the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get 30 miles of line in the water, you've got 800 hooks on it. That's a small set. I mean, a, a, you know, most guys would set between 40 and 45 miles with about 1,000 or 1,200 hooks every night. Wow. Now, so that's what we call a set. That's one line with, with a thousand hooks on it? Yes. And, and that's on the leader? Yes. How many fish do you catch? Do you just catch one fish on one line? I mean... It, you only catch one fish on one hook. Oh. And it would be nice if you could catch, you know, a fish on every hook. And, you know, that doesn't happen. Um, 
really the goal is to get a obviously to get a trip of fish on the boat before too much time elapses. Mm -hmm. If you can average 3,000 pounds a night, you're doing well. Mm -hmm. You know, you fish your 10 nights, you get 30,000 pounds, or you fish your 15 nights, you have 45,000 pounds, then you're done, you're going in. Mm -hmm. um, you certainly have days that you catch as little as 500 pounds. Uh, biggest set I've ever had was over 10,000 pounds in one night. Uh, but you know, the thing is, it, it's a grind for the most part, and you need, you know, you have an average that you sort of need to maintain to get a trip. Talk about what you call the Grand Banks bubble. What exactly is that, and, and what what happens when you're in the Grand Banks bubble? Well, what I mean when I talk about the Grand Banks bubble is that you really are in this world apart. You know, it's remote. Um, you know, you're on this boat. There's maybe a handful of other boats around, and that's your whole world. You know, you don't have any contact with home. You know, you don't know what's going on in the news because you don't have a television set. Uh, we mark time differently. I don't wear a wristwatch. Doesn't matter what time it is. What matters is how much line is on or off the boat. Doesn't matter what day it is. What matters is how many fish do we have? How much bait do we have left? Where's the moon? What's going on with the moon? Really? So you don't keep track of, do you, you don't even know what day it is? No, I mean, there's really no reason to know that. There's, you don't, no. Wow. I don't know if it's Monday or Wednesday or Saturday. I mean, it just doesn't matter. Hmm. It just doesn't, it never even crosses your mind. We all think of our neighbor to the north of Canada as a bunch of very mild-mannered folks who say A a lot and are, you know, generally as innocuous as snow bunnies. Um, this, however, when it comes to being out in the ocean, this is exactly, absolutely not the case, is it? No. And you want to ask me about being arrested, I and that's okay, do. because I am learning through the course of this book tour with Seaworthy that the arrest is quickly displacing the other equally comfortable question, and that's always been about my love life. So, the arrest. Um... I will say up front, I was arrested inadvertently, unknowingly, unintentionally fishing in Canadian water. Uh, unfortunately, intention has nothing to do with, it's not a defense. Mm -hmm. Ignorance right. of the law is no yeah. excuse. Well, I wasn't even ignorant of the law. I mean, I knew mm -hmm. that it was illegal to fish in Canada. But um, I didn't know that that I my had I didn't know that I had crossed that line and was hauling gear in Canada. Mm. It's kind of a long story. You may have to read the book to get the details on that one. Um, having said that, I do love Canadians. I love Newfoundland. I love Newfoundlanders. And you know, <laughs> even the, though that's where they took you and yeah, threw they, you in the hooskow. Right. Yep. I was handcuffed and put in jail in St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, but you know, they didn't give me any special treatment. They treated me the way that they would anyone else who'd been caught fishing in Canadian water. So it would have been nice if they'd given me special treatment, but, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't to happen. No one's ever been acquitted of those charges. The Canadians patrol that and defend it and guard it, and they should. Mm -hmm. ha having had, like, a, a less than um, perfect run, here you are, you've returned after 10 years, your boat is just fraught with problems. You, you 
make it out um, there, you, you get busted partway through. Um, then you get to get back to fishing. And then you have an interesting discussion about fishing and cheating. And, and I think this is your observations here are really interesting. Well, you know, there are always, there are always guys who will cheat. How do you cheat at fishing? Well, I mean, it's just basic. Okay, everyone lies, but that's basically about what you're catching. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, you try and defend your piece of the turf by dissuading anyone else from trying to get your piece, and that's by saying you know we aren't catching anything. But really, cheating would be like to really move in on someone else's piece of ground. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think what you're referring to is you know I'm getting back out fishing and. The weather's pretty bad, and the fleet is not going to fish. They're taking a night off. But I've got an opportunity, cause, because no one knows I'm back out, because I haven't been on the radio, to wiggle right in to the most coveted spot, the spot that's really been producing, and just not say anything, just set the gear. Of course, that would require fishing some really bad weather that nobody else is going to fish. Mm -hmm. And I really considered it. I mean, I, I got to a point of I actually had my guys get the bait out of the bait freezer mm. so we could, like, sneak this set in. Um, end of the day, I didn't do it. And I think I say in Seaworthy that there really there's no joy in cheating. Mm -hmm. I mean, there wouldn't be, you this, know. If, this is why you're a fisherman because you fish because you enjoy the fishing and you're not a fisherman for money. Clearly. Exactly. <laughs> in this, in this, in this, in this case, I really. Now, uh, you, you almost lost a, a crew member. I, talk about that because that's got to be some, the most, I think, difficult experience you could possibly have in, in this. In this uh, it would have been. It would have been. Um, that would have been the end of my career if I'd lost a man overboard. No, no question about it. I never would have gone to sea again. That's something I could not deal with um is we were hauling you, gear or or would you not would they not have would you not have been invited i mean no could... it would be just me okay it would be just me i mean i didn't throw the guy overboard no right <laughs> so <laughs> um uh you know we were hauling gear and the weather was horrendous and this is a situation you know you have 30 or 40 miles of gear in the water you set it at night the next morning you get up to haul it you know sometimes the weather's bad and in this case the weather was really bad uh, we have to get the gear back on the boat. You can't wait for the weather to get good. I mean, it might blow for three days. Mm. Your gear would be like around the Azores somewhere. You, you'd never get it back. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have to struggle along and, and get it back. So we were slow and easy, you know, pretty much taking a beating, trying to get this gear back on the boat, and we're catching fish, which is probably the first time all trip that we were actually catching some fish right off the bat. Boom, boom, boom. We've got like two or three really nice fish on the deck. The fish are going rail to rail every time a a wave breaks onto the deck, you know, everything's adrift, floating mm. around and slatting. And Machado, who's the butcher or the fish cleaner, is going back and forth with the fish, and he's getting pretty pissed off. It's just nasty. Mm -hmm. um, I'm happy we're catching fish, and I'm, I've got my hands full just trying to keep the boat on the gear. Really, it, it's a hard job when, you know, the wind's blowing so hard and you're getting smashed by seas. Just trying to stand up is hard. So we're, we have a job to do, and we're doing it. Well, there's a cut. In, in the rail of the boat called a door. And it's to make it easy to bring fish aboard. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's just this door. At the beginning of the book, you talk about walking up through the door. Right, exactly. So it's just this, like, hole in the rail of the boat. So instead of pulling a fish all the way up and over the mm -hmm. cap rail, you just pull it through the side of the boat. Mm. Well, there's 
a door that you put into that hole to close it. And we started hauling the gear that morning, and I said, guys, put the door in because, you know, it would keep some of the water from coming in and, you know, afraid of fish or whatever going overboard. It's dangerous to have it out. Mm-hmm. And the answer I got was, uh, it doesn't fit right, and it's really hard to get in and out, you know. It's just jammed. So I said, oh, whatever, okay, it's not my problem. I, I got my hands full up here trying to get, you know, the line just coming back on the boat. Oh, like an hour into that day, we took one hellacious sea over the side of the boat. And I'm just doing a head count, turn around to see who's, you know, still on the boat. Saw one fish go out through the door when the water gushed that way. Saw a second fish going for the door. And saw Mike Machado looking pretty helpless, all awash in this ton of water that's on the boat, going right for the door, right behind the fish. And I just knew he was a goner. And I knew really in my heart, that if he did go through that door, I'd never get him back in that kind of weather. I mean, how, you, how are you going to get the boat back to him? Mm-hmm. We're moving ahead trying to haul this gear. You know, do you tr- put the engine in reverse and try and stop the boat? Then you risk chopping him up in the propeller. Mm-hmm. Anyway, out of nowhere, right as Machado's head is going out that door, one of the other crew members, Timmy, appears, bang, and just nailed him right to the deck and just stopped him from going out. Which was a good thing. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I can't imagine. I really honestly cannot imagine losing someone overboard and not getting them back. And I think if Timmy hadn't grabbed Machado, that would have been the case. After all of this, I mean, and you had a, you know, Hiltz was electrocuted. Well, you know, okay, Hilt says he was electrocuted. Okay, I think that means you died. He's still with us, but uh-huh. he did. He, he got <laughs> zapped really badly. I mean, the, the boat, as I said, was just in such a, a sorry, sorry, sorry state of disrepair. And a lot of things were done at the dock really quickly to get us off the dock. Mm. And there were some, some lights that weren't wired right. And, you know, that Hilt's got jolted really bad i mean it was bad enough so that he uh, you know he had to miss a night of work and i was very concerned about him you you have this disastrous trip yet apparently you returned and were invited to return (laughs) after afterwards well you know what it's kind of like you know you hear um airplane pilots saying that any landing you walk away from is a good landing Yeah, yeah, I have, there's a there's or an equivalent like saying that. in radio too. What is it? <laughs> well, any any show during which I do not use one of the words I'm not supposed to use <laughs> on the radio is a show that has succeeded. <laughs> so far, we're doing okay, then, right? Yeah, so far we're doing pretty good. <laughs> I got one beep. I got to beep myself. Though, okay. So. Um, how did you get enticed to? Did you when you finished this trip? Did you want to go back again? I did, I did, and it, um, you know. It's one of those things where a fisherman would understand this. You know, Mm -hmm. we've all had bad trips, Mm -hmm. but you don't just not go again. You know, you just don't not go again if it's what you love to do. In spite of all um, of the terrible things, some of them, you know, we created ourselves and others we had no control over, all of the terrible things, we managed to get through all of it. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain satisfaction and success in getting through hard times. And there's something that's a good feeling about it's like riding out a storm. You know, yeah, you know, you're really busy and you're just, you know, kind of worried. You might be scared. But guess what? The next day when the sun comes out and the wind drops out, you're feeling pretty good about things. 
you know, you're, I think, quite a skilled as a writer, and I'd like you to tell me how much of your uh, tenacity as a fisherman comes across in your writing. I mean, um, do you have to pursue it with the same kind of rigor? Do, do the skills that make you a great sea captain also make you a, a great writer? I think so, and, and it's a really simple, really simple equation. I know how to work. Writing is extremely hard work for me. I treat it the way I do fishing. I am disciplined about it. When I'm fishing, I'm breathing, living, eating, sleeping, fishing. When I sign a contract to write a book and I get a check, it becomes very serious. And I have to do nothing but write or think about that writing. And that's the way I treat it. I have a schedule I keep. I get up first thing in the morning and I write. And I write four or five hours or until I can't stand it anymore. And then I go do something else. For instance, hauling lobster traps. At this point in my life, hauling lobster traps is mindless. It's the same thing over and over. So when I'm hauling my traps, I'm loving being on my boat. The sun is out. Everything's good. I'm thinking about my writing to a point of when I sit down the next morning, I may have the first paragraph all polished right in my head. So I never sit down and think, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to write about today. So, so that seems to work for me. And, you know, I've, I've, I've read and seen other interviews, and I've spoken with other writers and, and, other, and non-writers. And, you know, I hear about people who write, and it's very easy for them, and they really love it. That's not me. And I've heard, you know, people saying that the characters took over and the book wrote itself. That is not my experience. I mean, I have to drag my characters kicking and screaming from the first page through the end of the book. It's, it's hard. It is hard work. And I'm used to hard work. The difference is fishing, I love the process. Writing, I love the end result. I love my books. Boy, I don't like what it takes to get here. <laughs> Now, I have to ask you, you did this whole journey that you document here with a bunch of people with cameras on board, a TV crew. Uh, that's got to be very bizarre. Well, and, you know, sort of to top off the humiliation, to have, you know, <laughs> here's my big comeback trip and everyone thinks I'm the best thing since sliced bread. I sure wasn't showing it. But, you know, it's all the more reason for me to to just buck up and, and hold my head high and say, you know what, we got through the trip. We had a lot of problems, but I'm going back. Nope. Nobody died, so hey, mission accomplished. Exactly. And we caught some fish. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We had not a great trip. We had a respectable trip. For, for the hooks and the amount of gear that we were fishing a night, we actually outfished everyone in the fleet. We didn't end up with the best trip, but for per unit of effort and result, we're the highliners. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our, our checkbooks, you know, don't show it. But, um, but we do have a little bit of pride in saying, you know, we did, we did well for what we had. We did well for what we did. Does that make sense? I've been speaking with Linda Greenlaw. Her new book is Seaworthy, A Swordboat Captain Returns to the Sea. Thank you for joining me, Linda. Thanks so much for having me. That was fun.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.